Hi, and welcome to Global Natives. I am your host, Rosario Sutton. My guest for this episode is Michael Tearawa Bennett, an award-winning screenwriter and director of film and television, as well as author and owner of the 10,000 Production Company. Michael is a native New Zealander and also member of the Gati Pikiao and Gati Wakao people. Michael, thank you so much for joining me and inaugurating Global Natives with the first episode. Kia ora, Rosario. It's a real honor to be here. Thanks again. I'd like to start off with one of your current projects. In the midst of COVID-19, New Zealand is doing exceptionally well in containing this pandemic. People are carrying on with their daily lives and it seems to be business as usual. With that said, you have just wrapped up production for a television series being filmed in Rotorua. Could you tell us a bit more about this project, what it's about, what it means to you, and when we can expect to see it? Absolutely. Um, yes, no, uh, New Zealand is, a, is in a really blessed position with, you know, a combination of our geographic isolation and our government's incredible good handling of the situation has meant that we have fairly much eliminated the virus altogether from social transmission, which is pretty extraordinary. And consequently, yeah, life is sort of back to normal. In the weekend, I went to a concert with 20,000 people. We've just finished um, a series of uh, a, a rugby, which is our national sport, rugby series with packed stadiums. All our restaurants are open, our, our economy is rebounding, and, and as you say, uh, filming has uh, absolutely been has started rolling again, and in fact, productions are coming from all over the world to come and shoot here in a, in a COVID-free environment. Yeah, over our lockdown, which was earlier in the year, I was finishing writing the scripts for a series called Vegas, which is a, a, cri- a six-part crime thriller series. There's a number of things that I think are kind of really special about it that have really kind of moved me. One is that, first of all, being able to shoot in, in my tribal area of Rotorua, which is the, the home of the Te Arawa tribe, which is an extraordinary place. It's a, um, it's a, it's a thermal area where... The crust of the earth is very thin, literally. You know, the, the volcanic and tectonic forces below us are constantly breaching the thin crust of the earth. So, you know, you walk down the road and steam comes from the gutters and uh, there's geysers and mud pools. So you have, you know, you have a very tangible sense of um, the power of the ancient forces beneath us. But also it's a very spiritual area. It's a... a place of sort of the heart of the heart of Maori culture in many ways in New Zealand. So not only is there the sense of the great forces of nature below, but there's also a sense of real spirituality and the um, the presence of the gods and the dead walking side by side with the living. I can't I can't think of any place that's more um, evocative to set a crime thriller series than a place like Rotorua. And we, with Vegas, we've very much um, embraced that. So the landscape and is a huge part of the series, the, the, um, the power and the forces of uh, the landscape, but also the power and the forces of the dead and the power and the forces of the gods. So it's an unusual kind of crime thriller series. It's definitely not CSI, CSIR. It's, um, it's a series about a young man who's a leader of a gang who is given leadership of his family, um, which I prefer to think of and as, as, as a leader of a whanau, uh, which is the Māori with the family, rather than the leader of a gang, because that's what they are. It, it, the, the, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a family who will lay down their lives for each other. So the lead character is given when the previous leader dies unexpectedly, he is given leadership of the 
the family before his time. And the series really explores him trying to live up to the mantle of leadership. And at the same time, uh, you know, there's competition for the crown from those who believe that they are more have more right to be leaders of the of the family. Um, and also, there's outside forces, uh, other other gangs and other organisations who are trying to unseat the young and untested leader. Ultimately, it's a story, I guess, about a, a young man who will eventually come over a course of a number of series come to be the great leader that the leader before him knew he could be. But, of course, because it's um, it's a drama, uh, it's not going to be easy for him. And over the course of a number of series, he is going to grow into his leadership. He's going to become the man he was always destined to be, and he's going to lead his people to a better place. But it ain't going to be easy for him. Well, that's great. Actually, speaking of, you know, the location that this show centers around, in a recent article, I read that the production of Vegas um, recruited locals in Rotorua which, as you mentioned, houses, you know, a vibrant Maori community. And the article discussed the importance of showcasing other landscapes and communities in the country, not just the bigger cities, so that the young Tengata Wanua can get involved in this growth where there otherwise might be lack of exposure to local opportunities. So it's also important to note that in this article that I read that the team of co-producers and storyliners, along with yourself, have worked closely with Iwi and Hapu, and for our listeners, that is the Maori language for tribe and smaller family clans, along with local authorities to ensure the storytelling is accurate and fair in its representation of characters' backgrounds. So can you delve into the importance of, you know, partnering, consulting, and seeking guidance to make sure that culture is, is portrayed accurately, such as with the protagonist in your story, for example. Yeah, no, absolutely. A truly wonderful thing about the series has been the partnership between three companies to make the series. The, the lead company is a, a company called Greenstone, which is an Auckland-based company. And the Greenstone, uh, first of all, uh, approached uh, me and my company, 10,000 Company, to, uh, to develop the storyline. It's an adaptation of a book. Uh, the book was called um, in the Black Horse, uh, which is the name of uh, a pub that's in the centre of the story where, where a heist goes wrong in the first episode. Greenstone partnered with my company um, on a creative level. We partnered with an organisation of Māori filmmakers from the Te Arua, Rotorua region uh, called Steambox, who are an extraordinary, extraordinary group of beautiful, brilliant, highly committed young and not so young, um, Māori filmmakers who, who have been working very, very hard to establish uh, Rotorua as a, um, as a filmmaking hub, and they're well on their way. And this in Vegas is, um, is kind of uh, one of the really big steps on Steambox's journey of, of making Rotorua a really important filming destination. My process has always been, because I don't speak the language, I don't speak uh, the real, uh, my children do. My kids have all gone through a... Um, uh, a Māori education system, um, but it wasn't something that I could give them because I wasn't brought up speaking the language. So for me, telling Māori stories is uh, absolutely pivotal to everything I do, every every project that I um, I create and, and make always inevitably returns to themes of Māori, where we are, our place in the world, where we're going. You know, I recognise that I have uh, certain skills as a as a, a writer and as a filmmaker. I always seek support and knowledge from those who have more skills than me in other areas, in, in the language and in, in tikanga, um, which is really like a, a Māori perspective on the world and Māori way of doing things. So 
Steambox, you know, our partnership, our three-way partnership has been quite extraordinary. Each of us sort of, I guess, bringing a set of uh, important but very different skills to the process, which is included in the storylining process and in the filming process. Another sort of really extraordinary thing that makes all of us incredibly proud about the filming of Vegas is that as you say, uh, right from the start, we we wanted this more to be to be more than just a, a TV show that's filming in an extraordinary place. We wanted to take some responsibility in terms of um, facilitating the education and the um, the training of another generation of young Maori filmmakers. Steambox facilitated the a scheme where I think maybe two dozen young. Māori who had never had any experience on a film set in their lives became attached to all the different departments to to costume, to uh, camera, to um, to design, etc., etc. And those uh, you know, twenty four or twenty five um, young Māori filmmakers have had their very first experience, but you know, in a really in depth way. They they followed through the process through pre production right the way through the fourteen weeks of shooting. And they've come out the other end now with, you know, the skills to actually enter the industry. So I guess as well as like being, uh, you know, a story that I think we all kind of, we all deeply believe in and we hope is going to be both exciting for the audience, but also, you know, pretty meaningful for the audience, hopefully. We all, you know, it's something that makes us all incredibly proud that we've, uh, you know, a whole bunch of new filmmakers uh, have been through this process and are ready to enter the industry and contribute to the industry. Now, I want to get into something very meaningful to you, which has to do with your 2018 film entitled In Dark Places, which is a story about a young man named Tena Pora of Maori origin, who was wrongly convicted and sentenced to life in prison for a murder he did not commit. Now, this has been known as one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in New Zealand history, which has reached the highest court in the Commonwealth, I believe. Not only did you write the book and create the film, but you also assisted with proving this man's innocence. And along with Tim McKinnell, an Auckland detective who discovered this forgotten case after 18 years, it is safe to say that you ultimately paved the way for his freedom. So I really want to hear what In Dark Places means to you as a film, but also about the personal relationship with Tana and what that means to you. Um, thank you for asking that, Rosario. Yeah, um, I, I think In Dark Places will always remain probably, in my view, the most important piece of work that I'll do in my life. Just to, you know, because um, I'm sure most of your audience uh, won't know too much about the New Zealand justice system or about the particular case of, uh, of Tainer Porter. So really briefly, what it is is that Tainer Tainer is a young man, is a 17-year-old young um, Māori man in South Auckland, which is a uh, um, you know quite an economically challenged part of town. Um, he had, as a 17-year-old, he he had a two-year-old child who he was struggling to be able to look after. He became aware of a an unsolved murder for which there was a $20,000 reward, and for a number of reasons that I'll go into in a little while, he decided um, to make a, a false confession to being involved in the case in the you know, misguided belief that that would lead to him getting the $20,000 reward and, and walking out the door and being able to care for his daughter, Chanel. Uh, it was a cold case, which was why there was a $20,000 reward. And, um, and when he walked into the police station and started 
making this false confession, um, it's safe to say that he was welcomed with open arms by the police there because they, you know, it was a um, an embarrassment to the um, uh, to the to the police that there'd been a year gone by from after this, you know, quite brutal rape and murder with no suspects. So they welcomed Tainer's uh, confession and. Over the course of five days where Tainer was interviewed by the police without a lawyer present, he made a number of confessions that, that began quite ridiculously. It was really clear um, because, of, you know, early on I saw all the, the tapes of these interviews. It was really clear that he knew nothing about the crime, uh, including, you know, when he was asked to describe the victim, he described her as blonde and chubby fat. She was actually brunette and athletic. And this kind of thing happened again and again. It was really clear to any objective observer, I believe, uh, that this guy knew nothing about the crime. Uh, the police interviewed him for five days, and over the course of those five days, they um, uh, they introduced him to certain... He was made aware of certain aspects of the case, and he was able to, uh, after a while, uh, come up with enough of a confession that... that eventually would stand up in court, um, the police would take, you know, arrested him after those five days of being interviewed without a lawyer present and charged him with murder. And subsequently he spent 21 years in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. What emerged uh, eventually was that, the, the, you know, obviously it, it seems like a really strange thing to do to confess to something so awful. And what emerged was that Tainer suffered from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is a really terrible brain injury. And one of the symptoms of the brain injury really is that you don't have a lot of understanding of uh, the consequences of your actions. Really what you see is in front of you, the $20,000 reward. You don't see that confessing to a crime um, like murder and rape is uh, ultimately going to go really wrong. In 2011, um, the the private detective who had discovered, I guess, who had re-found Tainer's case after it had been sitting forgotten um, for uh, well over a decade, uh, an extraordinary man called Tim McKinnell. Um, I met Tim and he showed me those the videotapes of Tainer's supposed confessions, and that was, um, you know, that was one of the most moving, devastating times of my life. Sitting there watching this young. Māori boy sitting in a police interview room with two of the most senior detectives in the Auckland Police Force and watching him walk step by step towards um, a vortex, a, a cliff that he was about to fall over for 21 years. It was a really devastating, heartbreaking thing watching those videotapes. And Tim had come to me because, you know, he was he was doing what he does so brilliantly, which was to put together a legal case to contest what had happened and try and, and win Tainer his freedom. He came to me because um, I think he, he, he'd seen some of my work and he thought that I would probably be fairly passionate about the story and I was incredibly passionate about the story and that he knew that um, as well as the legal side, uh, you know, being able to tell Tainer's story to the public in different ways um, would be very powerful in terms of getting public support behind Tainer. Having watched those videotapes, the police videotapes of this terrible travesty of justice happening, you know, in front of the the interview room ca camera, uh, I was utterly convinced that this was an innocent man. Um, but then uh, an extraordinary thing happened about a week later. Tim McKinnell asked me, you know, do you think you want to be involved? And, and I said, 
you know, try and stop me. A week or so later, Tim took me to prison to, um, to Paremurumo prison to meet Taina for the first time. It was, um, it was a really confronting experience. You know, um, I'd never been inside a prison gate before. And especially, I guess, I, I, well, I mean, I'd never met a, a convicted murderer before, but I, you know, I, I knew that Taina hadn't committed the crime. Um, but I guess one thing that really haunted me was that I, putting myself in his position, I imagined that Tainer would be, you know, a really bitter, angry man who, you know, if I was him, I'd wake up every morning and punch the prison cell walls. Um, and that's the man I was expecting to meet. But um, the man I met was as different from that as he could possibly be. He, it was a truly remarkable experience. He's a... a a softly spoken guy, um, he's respectful, he's quiet, he's unassuming and humble. And a thing that happened, Rosario, very early on in one of my first meetings with Taina was that a, um, we were sitting at a picnic table outside in the visiting area, which was is right beside the, the razor wire fences of, of minimum security prison. And as we were talking, we were just talking about our families and um, because he had, he has this daughter who by then was 20 years old and she had a, a, a boy of her own, Benson, his grandson. And we were talking about my children, his grandson and his daughter. And as we were talking, a ladybird landed on the table, the picnic table between us. And the ladybird started to crawl towards Tana. Tana kept on talking about his family. And as the ladybird crawled closer, he raised his finger and I thought, okay, it's, it's just an annoying bug. It's going to get squashed and it's not long for the world. But he did this quite remarkable thing. He put his finger down beside the ladybird. He let the ladybird crawl up onto his finger and then he blew on the tip of his finger. The ladybird spread its wings and it flew out through the razor wire fence to freedom, to the freedom that Tana couldn't fly away to. For me, that was a really sort of pivotal kind of a moment where if I hadn't known that Tainer was an innocent man before that, before that moment, um, it, it, it's sort of like the evidence was in front of me. He was a guy who literally couldn't squash a bug. After meeting Tainer and after seeing those terrible, devastating police interviews, it, it became, you, you know, a, a true labour of passion and love for me to to want to do everything that I could as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, as a writer, to support Tim McKinnell and what he was doing to try and find justice for Tainer. So I, I made a documentary on his case, which led to a piece of evidence being uncovered, uh, which was the evidence of his um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which became pivotal in his eventual exoneration, which was, um, you know, it still it will always remain, um, you know, a source of just true humbling pride to me that that, uh, that something that I did played some part in, in um, the, the freeing of this guy. Um, I wrote a book and, yeah, and then I made, um, uh, with with my partner Jane Holland, uh, made a, uh, a dramatic feature version of the story. And for me, I guess, you know, not only is it a story about a man that, you know, me and Jane and our children, because our children used to go and visit Tainer in prison and, you know, that we came to love and feel that he was part of our family. It's, it's not only the story of one man, but it's also, I guess, the story of injustice against Māori in New Zealand. In many ways, 
Tainer's story is the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's a very, very high-profile case now. You know, everyone knows Tainer's name and what happened to him. Um, but he, he is really, I guess, the poster boy for, you know, systemic injustice that is throughout the justice system uh, in terms of the way Māori and Pacifica people are treated within the justice system in New Zealand. We are, you know... We are the most imprisoned Indigenous race on the face of the planet. 53% of our prison cells are occupied by Māori, whereas, you know, Māori are actually, we are only 14% of the population. It's a conversation that's, um, you know, I, I think Indigenous peoples all around the world will identify with this, of course. It's, you know, colonisation has led to so many violence and Loss of uh, uh, of liberty and uh, land and um, and and so many other things. So I guess yeah, for, for me, for me and for Jane as filmmakers, what was incredibly important was not only telling Tana's story, but positioning it as look. There's lots of things about our justice system in New Zealand that are pretty amazing, and there's stuff that is not amazing at all, and there's stuff that still needs serious, serious work. Um, and so I guess that was the bigger theme of the story for us. Certainly. Well, you pretty much just spoke to what I was going to say next, and his story just seems to have a profound impact on you, which has certainly been conveyed in the book and the film, Um, and like you mentioned, his story also seems to mirror that of many marginalized people where institutional factors, you know, systemic injustices play a significant role in one's life, you know, as with several indigenous groups across the globe, Mary have higher unemployment and incarceration rates. There's tougher access to healthcare and educational opportunities post-colonialism. What, if anything, can we learn from this and from your film serving as a backdrop to this young man's experience? What we always have to learn and, and always have to keep at the front of our uh, minds is that history isn't something that just belongs in books. You know, what happened 200 years ago in New Zealand and in different times in different places around the world in terms of the colonial experience for Indigenous people. You know, it's a very easy thing to say that was 200 years ago, that was 300 years ago, that has absolutely nothing to do with me right now. Let's just um, forget about it and, and move on. The simple kind of inescapable truth is that it wasn't then. It wasn't just then. <laughs> it is now. The, the scars of colonisation are raw the scars of colonisation are open and bleeding and can be seen in the experience of every young Indigenous person who doesn't have the same opportunities as the as those around him who are non-Indigenous, of every incarcerated, unemployed Indigenous person, of every person who has lost their land and lost their language and is at the bottom of the scrap heap. And as filmmakers, I guess... Indigenous people, it, it is our job to keep that to keep that alive until it is put right. And when it is put right, then we can stop talking about it. <laughs> you know, but you know, and I fully recognise that. Yes, Maori are in a privileged position in a way. We have a treaty that recognises that was established uh, at the time of colonisation that that guaranteed certain rights. But you know, the fact of the matter is that that treaty was largely ignored um, for two centuries, and um, all the undertakings were sort of brushed away. Finally, in the last few decades, you know, the responsibilities undertaken in the treaty have started to be recognised. But all the same, you know, there's this 
terrible kind of effect. That uh, our treaty between Māori and um, the English is, is called the Treaty of Waitangi, and there's a tribunal called the Waitangi Tribunal, which uh, has is entrusted to set to to ensure that the treaty is recognised and activated, and that um, Māori tribes' um, rights are recognised under the treaty. So. Each, each of the tribes has gone through the process of going to the Waitangi Tribunal to reclaim what was rightfully theirs. But the fact of the matter is that um, I, I, I believe the statistic is something like only 3% of the lands, of the rights, of, of the ownership that was originally invested in um, the different tribes, only 3% actually ever gets returned to the tribe as a result of the process. While we are in a privileged position as, as Māori because we have this treaty, it doesn't mean to say everything is going right, nor that our rights have truly been returned. And and I fully recognise that, of course, for Indigenous people in so many other places around the planet um, are in an even, like, even worse position than, than Māori. So yeah, I, I think we cannot allow this to be just a question of history it's over and it's done with, and especially we as filmmakers, you know, we are, we are able to talk to people in a, you know, in an influential way. And I think it's our job to keep talking about what is wrong until it's not wrong anymore. Great. Well, Michael, there has certainly been a solid movement um, to challenge adversities, not only from the founding of the country, but especially in recent decades, as you mentioned, you know, the 1970s brought forth the Renaissance for the Maori Collective. I found an article with Taika Waititi that discusses the importance of portraying Indigenous people as doing normal, everyday things, not necessarily looked at as the other, where one is doing stereotypical Native things. From your work, it is clear that you are creating authentic stories with accurate portrayals where Native Maori belong as a Native New Zealander. So I thank you for doing that and just representing these indigenous stories yeah I, d I don't see it as a responsibility whatsoever i just think it's you know if you're maori and you're a filmmaker then you are just simply naturally drawn to telling the stories that affect you and affect those that are around you uh, i mean i think you know i think that i continually because i you know i teach quite a lot i teach young filmmakers and emerging filmmakers and one of the things that I do is to um, to go on Marae, which is the um, in a tribal homeland, uh, the areas where where different tribes and sub tribes have their uh, meeting houses and the, their places of meeting. I work with a group called Script to Screen, and uh, um, every year we go to the Hokianga, which is this extraordinary region far north New Zealand. We go on to Marae, and we um, we have this quite beautiful process, which is a two day process where uh, on the first day, we talk with young uh, young Maori, not necessarily young. There's a whole range of people who, who do turn up to uh, to to have a look at what we're doing. And the first day, I you know show some films, short films, and uh, usually with Maori themes or characters, and and I talk about the process of filmmaking. And uh, I set everyone there the challenge of coming back the next day with a story, a story that comes from them to pitch as a potential film and my the big job that you know that that I want to do in this process is is to get people really understanding that what is really important in telling stories on film is that it comes from your heart it comes from your own lived in experience which is utterly unique and you know no one else on earth 
knows your story. And that's what is going to make an extraordinary, unique film story is what comes from within you. You know, I, I constantly tell new filmmakers or anyone who's interested in potentially telling stories for film, there's no, you know, don't try and be the next Quentin Tarantino. Don't try and be the next Taika Waititi. You know, they do what they're doing and they do it really, really well. And God bless them. If you try and be them, you're just going to be a, a, a pale shadow of what they do. What makes them unique is that they have their own particular view on the world that is informed by who they are. So with, you know, with this process on that first day, I, you know, I challenge them to come back the next day with, with a story that, um, that comes from them. And the next day we sit around and it's truly extraordinary. Like, um, a, a whole bunch of uh, young people who have never actually thought about making films before stand up and they pitch a film. We work with them to sort of develop ideas. And um, and one result of this has been one year, um, an extraordinary young woman, a 16-year-old called Kiana Titore, um, pitched this quite beautiful short film. We helped her develop into a script and then um, – came back with some really generous uh, filmmakers the next weekend and we shot the film uh, with her. She directed it and wrote the script and um, we, we, we sort of wrapped around and supported her. The following year, her film was selected for the New Zealand International Film Festival and for uh, Imaginative in Toronto and it went all around the world and she was the youngest person ever selected for the New Zealand Film Festival. So long story short, it's not something that, you know, I, I think what we should kind of like recognise is that what makes the the world is hungry for diverse stories. The world is hungry for people whose truths are really profoundly different from their own truths, whose worlds are so different to their own worlds. Diversity in filmmaking, you know, I think it's really important that that doesn't just come from having people in front of the camera who are a different colour, but the story is still being told by the mainstream. True diversity in storytelling comes when the people behind the camera who are dictating where the camera is going to point, but, you know, what the camera is going to look at. Uh, but much more importantly than that, one step backwards, the people who are writing the screenplays and deciding what the story is going to be. True diversity comes when the people who are writing the scripts and who are directing the films are the diverse voices and are the diverse faces. Yeah, you know, it was an incredible moment when Taika stood up getting his, um, <laughs> getting his Oscar and talked about Indigenous kids around the world and how, you know, how he, he hoped that, uh, that this was a moment where, you know, they recognised that their stories were valid and important to be told. And, you know, God bless you, bro. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> well, Michael, it is really great to hear that you are mentoring the future generation of New Zealand filmmakers and with such a cultural and world view. So you're certainly an asset to the film industry and the diverse stories that you're delivering. It has been a pleasure speaking with you today and I truly appreciate your insight and I look forward to seeing Vegas and your future projects. Thank you, Rosario. And it's a real honor, especially it's so cool that this is your debut episode of the podcast and, and good on you for giving a platform for indigenous voices to be heard in, um, in this particular way. Yeah, Thank you so much again and to our listeners for joining us on Global Natives. <laughs>